One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Texans at Panthers. Kickoff Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 43 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Both of these teams enter week eight coming off a bye and hoping for a strong second half to their season with their high-profile rookie quarterbacks. The Panthers are 0-6 and do not own their 2024 first-round draft pick. Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud is currently the odds-on favorite to win NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year. The Panthers' run defense has been near historically bad to start this season, but their pass defense hasn't been that much better. Houston's defense ranks in the middle of the pack against both the run and the pass, but has been playing extremely well lately. How Houston will try to win. The Texans have been one of the pleasant surprises to start this NFL season, turning things around faster than almost any outsider was expecting, and proving to be a competitive team on both sides of the ball. After a rough start to the year, the Texans' defense has rounded into form recently and has held four straight opponents to low point totals. During that stretch, the Texans have a 3-1 record, with their only loss coming on the road thanks to a last-second field goal by the Falcons. That stretch is made even more impressive because it has come against solid competition. The four teams they have faced during that stretch have a combined 15-8 record in non-Texans games this season, a 65% winning percentage. This team is quietly playing some of the best football in the league and should be getting healthier as they emerge from their bye week. During the NFL draft process, C.J. Stroud took many, often unnecessary and unwarranted, shots as people tried to poke holes in his game and question his ability to lead an NFL team. He has answered those questions and put the haters to rest rather quickly to start his NFL career, as he currently ranks 4th in the NFL in yards per attempt and 10th in QB rating. He has done this while playing with a receiving core that was widely regarded as one of the worst in the NFL entering the season and behind an offensive line that injuries have decimated. This week, Stroud and the Texans' offense gets their easiest on-paper matchup of the season against the Panthers' league-worst run defense and below-average pass defense. Houston has a below-average pass rate over expectation for the season and will likely continue down a similar path in Week 8, as they should have more success on the ground here than they have this year. That being said, their own running game is near the bottom of the league in most metrics, and they are unlikely to totally lean on the running game when Stroud has been so good. Their offensive line is also getting healthier, so their rushing efficiency should improve in this game, and Stroud should have time to make some plays in the passing game. Carolina plays zone coverage at the third highest rate in the league, and Stroud should have ample time to pick that zone apart. While his pass attempts may be down a bit this week, he will likely be very efficient when throwing it. How Carolina will try to win. Coming out of their week 7 bye, the Panthers are searching for answers. They have given up 37 or more points in three of their last four games and rank in the bottom three in the league in both offensive and defensive DVOA. Rookie quarterback and first overall pick Bryce Young ranks a disappointing 29th in the NFL in both QB rating and PFF passing grade. Certainly not the return the Panthers were hoping to see from their investment and this week they will be reminded of what they passed on when C.J. Stroud comes to town. Some teams in this position may think about pumping the brakes and letting young players get extra reps to tank for better draft position, but the Panthers don't even own their 2024 first-round pick after giving it up in the trade they made to move up and acquire Young. Due to this, the Panthers will almost certainly be doing everything they can for the remainder of the season to try to make some positive strides with Young and help him and the organization build some confidence for future years 
when they can push themselves into playoff contention. Carolina ranks fourth in the NFL in pass rate when not accounting for game script, and they have been blown out several times and forced to take to the air for large portions of the game. Adjusting for game script, Carolina ranks 23rd in the league in PROE as they try to keep things conservative for Young for as long as possible. The Panthers' backfield will likely be split between Miles Sanders and Chuba Hubbard as both are now healthy and Sanders was the team's big free agent acquisition this offseason, but Hubbard has outperformed him so far. Young ranks dead last in the NFL with a pitiful 5.3 yards per pass attempt that coincides with his 29th ranked average intended air yards as he struggles to push the ball down the field. Houston plays zone coverage at the fourth highest rate in the NFL and is effective at preventing long passing plays, so it is unlikely that this is the game where Carolina suddenly becomes a downfield passing juggernaut. Carolina will likely be a balanced and conservative offense early in this game, focusing on their running game and short area targets to the rejuvenated Adam Thielen and rookie Jonathan Mingo as the Panthers look for holes in the Texans' zone coverage. The Texans are near the bottom of the league in both QB pressure and blitz rates, so Young should have enough time to get rid of the ball on those quick hitters as Carolina hopes to march the ball down the field. The lack of firepower the Panthers enter this game with, combined with the schematic design of the Texans' defense, makes this a spot where Carolina is likely to continue their uninspiring offense, and they will have to hope their defense shows some signs of improvement. Likeliest Game Flow The Texans' defense looks mundane on paper, ranking 22nd against both the run and the pass by DVOA metrics. However, upon further inspection, we can see an improving unit playing at a high level recently under the direction of defensive-minded head coach D'Amico Ryans. After a shaky start to the season, where they surrendered 25 and 31 points to the Ravens and Colts, the Texans rattled off four straight games where they held their opponent under 20 points. Looking deeper at the Texans' performance this season, we can see that their two bad outings came against teams with an elite dual-threat quarterback in Lamar Jackson and Anthony Richardson. Those games were also the season's first two games, as the team was getting used to a new defensive system. Given that context and the struggles of Carolina's offense, it is hard to see a scenario where the Panthers have an explosive offensive showing and jump out to an early lead. The Texans' offense is likely to have success in this game and should be able to build a lead gradually. As noted earlier, they should be able to run the ball more effectively in this matchup than otherwise this season. However, they will still let Stroud throw aggressively early on as they look to build a lead and show off their shiny new toy to the team that passed on him. For those of you into the revenge narrative type of thing, it would certainly seem plausible that Stroud is especially ready to face the one team that passed on him in the draft. This profiles more as a throw-to-get-the-lead, run-to-protect-it game for the Texans rather than a ground-and-pound game plan, where they focus solely on attacking the Panthers' weakest point. The paths to this game turning into a shootout appear slim, although the clearest way to that outcome would likely be through early Panthers' success that puts Houston in a position to put their foot on the gas, as the Dolphins did in Week 6. Rams and Cowboys kick off Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Unfortunately, due to time constraints, audio for the Rams at Cowboys game is unavailable this week. Please consult OneWeekSeason.com for the full game write-up. Vikings at Packers kick off Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42. Game Overview by Hilo. Tight end Luke Musgrave has yet to practice as of Thursday with an ankle injury. Cornerback Jair Alexander was downgraded from limited to DNP Thursday, while Eric Stokes and Darnell Savage were placed on injured reserve Wednesday. Running back Aaron Jones got in a limited session Thursday and a DNP Wednesday. Tight end TJ Hawkinson upgraded from DNP to limited Thursday. 
Both the Packers and Vikings rank in the bottom 10 in the league in opponent plays per game, which is simultaneously telling regarding their offense and defense. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings continue to be one of the highest pass rate over expectation teams in the league, currently trailing only the Bengals and Chiefs in that metric. But a fourth ranked 26.9 seconds per play and extreme pass heavy tendencies, league low 19.1 rush attempts per game, have led to the potential for additional offensive plays run from scrimmage in games the Vikings are involved in. Kirk Cousins leads the league in total pass attempts, ranks second in yards, and fifth in total intended air yards, albeit with a modest 7.4 intended air yards per pass attempt. Basically, the Vikings have been extremely fast and pass-leaning, but largely incapable or unwilling to attack downfield at great frequency, which has left them reliant on stringing drives together through the air, which has, in turn, led to low average time of possession and to be low average offensive plays run from scrimmage per game. The good news here is that Joe Barry's mega-prevent defensive scheme has held opposition to a 6.2-yard defensive A dot this season, which aligns with how the Vikings should be looking to attack this game. Furthering the potential here is a banged-up Packers secondary, as Alexander was downgraded from limited to DNP on Thursday, while Savage and Stokes were both placed on injured reserve Wednesday. Jonathan Owens and Rudy Ford are not on the same level of talent as those two, and Alexander's absence would likely force Keyshawn Nixon into a perimeter role, unless the Packers want to play one of the two 2023 seventh-round picks on the perimeter. Cam Akers worked his way into 39% of the offensive snaps in Week 7, his highest rate of the season while with Minnesota. He saw 13 running back opportunities to 11 for Madison, which could continue forward as a strict timeshare considering head coach Kevin O'Connell's propensity to take a while to either admit mistakes or change personnel. More on that later when we talk about rookie wide receiver Jordan Addison playing behind KJ freaking Osborne. I digress. Either way, the clearest path to moving the ball against the Packers remains on the ground, although we know the Vikings largely base their attack through the air. The fact the Vikings have a season high of 24 team rush attempts through seven games played should be a clear indication that the upside from the backfield is rather limited, particularly considering the Minnesota offensive line has blocked to just 1.21 yards before contact. Continuing the discussion from earlier, the defensive tendencies from the Packers align naturally with how the Vikings are likely to approach this game on offense, and now the Packers will certainly be without two starters in the secondary, while another was downgraded midweek in practice to a DNP. The Vikings have turned to elevated rates of 21 personnel in the absence of Justin Jefferson, with Osborne playing nearly every offensive snap. Electric rookie Jordan Addison in a 75-85% snap rate role alongside Hawkinson and Brandon Powell in a 60% snap rate role. Josh Oliver and Johnny Munt are primarily blockers but share the 40-60% snap rate left over from the 12 personnel rates. Osborne is very good at running empty routes and dropping passes. Sorry, I had to. Addison was arguably the most pro-ready wide receiver to come out of this year's draft class. I'm not adept at KOC math, but that doesn't add up to me. Either way, O'Connell has been known to be stubborn when it comes to personnel decisions, which we alluded to when speaking to the running back situation. As far as upside goes, Addison and Hawkinson are the two likeliest to take advantage of the soft zone concepts of Barry's defense. How Green Bay will try to win. The Packers have quite honestly looked completely lost this year. Yes, they have dealt with numerous injuries to key offensive personnel, everything from the lead back to the alpha wide receiver to the offensive line, but those are simply excuses for poor game planning, game management, and execution. The offense has looked flat, uninspiring, and one-dimensional, reliant on the talent of its players instead of actively placing them in the best position to succeed. When fully healthy, expect the offense to leverage its run game to attack downfield, 
albeit with poor efficiency. Sorry, Packers fan here, and I had to vent. From a top-level perspective, the Packers play with moderate pace, 17th ranked 28.7 seconds per play, and the 12th highest rush rate over expectation, and a pass game designed around taking chunk shots downfield. Jordan Love's 9.4 intended air yards per pass attempt ranks as the second deepest in the league, with a low completion rate leading to a low 3.5 completed air yards per pass attempt. Further uncertainty has been introduced via Jones, who injured his hamstring in Week 1, returned in Week 4 to play only 35% of the offensive snaps, missed the next game plus the bye week with no further indication of another injury, meaning he likely aggravated the hamstring, then returned to a 36% snap rate in Week 7 after the team's bye week. A.J. Dillon, a back with bottom five efficiency metrics across the board, has been charged with leading this backfield for the previous five weeks. The matchup on the ground is middling against a Vikings defense blitzing the ever-living daylights out of opponents this season, but allowing just 3.6 yards per carry to opposing backfields. Your guess is as good as mine as to how the Packers divvy up their backfield snaps, with most of that left up to Jones' health. The Vikings have blitzed 24% more frequently than any other team in the league this year, 56.4%, but have played league average rates of man and zone behind it, which is a departure from the norm for defensive coordinator Brian Flores. Christian Watson has been that dude against zone coverage in his brief career, but is at the mercy of Love's downfield struggles, which are exacerbated against the blitz. It is likely those tendencies lead to another muted game plan from the Packers that is also accompanied by low downfield efficiency. That said, Watson is the type of wide receiver that can come out of nowhere and score three touchdowns, which could happen at some point this season. If the Packers can effectively scheme into the blitz, this could be the spot. Or it could not be, and the offense just continues to look like hot garbage. I don't know. From a snap rate perspective, Watson and Romeo Dobbs are the only two players in near every down rolls, and now Musgrave picked up an ankle injury and has yet to practice this week as of Thursday. Musgrave's injury could force Josiah Degara and rookie Tucker Kraft into increased roles for an offense that runs above average rates of 12 personnel. Jalen Reed, Dontavian Wicks, and Samori Touré split the remaining snaps at wide receiver. Likeliest Game Flow The Vikings are likeliest to control the game environment in this one, but we're left with a rather wide range of outcomes based on Minnesota's offensive tendencies, the Packers' injuries, and the ever-present possibility of Watson taking over a game. All of those variables make this game environment carry anything from a full-blown divisional shootout to a boring slugfest, and everything in between. The best pure upside plays are clearly Addison and Watson, with the theoretical reasoning leading to a highly correlated upside pairing for the two. Other than that, there is more downside than upside on all players not named Hawkinson and Dobbs, and even then, both carry moderate ADOTs and touchdown-driven upside. I don't see the need to play either quarterback, although either could theoretically be played with two members of their team. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Saints at Colts, kickoff Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Two of the top six teams in seconds per play, New Orleans at 27.3 and Indianapolis at 26.5, and plays per game, New Orleans 70.6, Indianapolis 67.1. The Colts have been a breeding ground for solid game environments through seven weeks. Running back Zach Moss, with elbow and heel injuries, and tight end Kylan Granson with a concussion, did not practice Wednesday for the Colts. Running back Alvin Kamara did not practice Wednesday for the Saints. 
Wide receiver Chris Olave was arrested Monday night for doing 70 and a 35, but was processed and released with no further action. Expect him to be out there on Sunday, and it's unlikely he sees any discipline from the league moving forward. Through the air, the Colts' defense is built to take away the likeliest approach from the Saints, while the Colts are not adept at attacking the weaknesses of the Saints' past defense. How New Orleans will try to win The Saints are a team built from their defense outwards. That makes sense considering head coach Dennis Allen spent his entire coaching career coaching the defensive side of the ball, but it begs repeating here. As such, what the Saints try and do offensively depends on the game's flow and carries elevated rates of situational biases. Yes, they are playing with pace this season and have run a lot of plays per game, but the heart of this team very much rests with the defense. Offensive coordinator Pete Carmichael has had success in the past designing an offense to maximize the talent he has on the field. Still, the truth is that his offenses have looked bland and unimaginative since Drew Brees retired. Put another way, this offense has not averaged more than 21.4 points per game since the 2020 season, ranking in the bottom half of the league in scoring in the previous three years. Adding to those struggles in 2023 are difficulties in the red zone as the Saints currently rank 28th in the league in red zone touchdown rate, finding the end zone on just 37.5% of their possessions that end inside the opposition's 20-yard line, 71.62% in 2020, 58.93% in 2021, and 52.08% in 2022. As for the offensive design, only 33 pass attempts have come from play action all year, and the offense rarely utilizes pre-snap motion. The Saints have a man in motion at snap at the fourth lowest rate in the league and a player in motion that comes set prior to the snap at the second lowest rate in the league. To hammer the point home a bit more, quite mundane. Yes, quite. The run game has been hit hard by this more face-up offensive approach, averaging just 3.5 yards per carry behind 1.25 yards before contact this season. Yes, they've had an injury and suspension-induced carousel at running back, but Alvin Kamara has even been held to under 3.8 yards per tote. The matchup yields just 1.28 net yards before contact against a Colts defense holding opposing backs to 3.8 yards per carry this season. Kamara's workload remains robust. 80.0% opportunity share ranks 5th, a filthy 9.8 targets per game, on pace to break the single-season target record set by Christian McCaffrey while missing three games. But the expected efficiency on the ground is not pretty in this spot. 9.8 targets per game is laughably adequate to offset those concerns, but it is worth mentioning how vanilla this offense has been thus far. Jamal Williams returned from injury in Week 7 to a 22% snap rate and just 5 carries. Finally, Kendra Miller got in a full practice while both starting tackles, Ryan Ramchek and Landon Young, got in limited sessions on Wednesday after missing Week 7. As was alluded to earlier, Carmichael's idea of forward-leaning offense involves gadget plays via tight end Taysom Hill with downfield shots mixed in. Quarterback Derek Carr ranks 8th in intended air yards per pass attempt, and alpha wide receiver Chris Olave has the most targets without a dropped pass this season, but the offense is more, hey, you, go beat that man, instead of, hey, let's do something to get our guys in the best spot to succeed as in the only quarterback with a bigger disparity between intended air yards per pass attempt and completed air yards per pass attempt than Carr is Jordan Love. Joshua Dobbs and Baker Mayfield rank just behind those two. It's not the greatest company to find yourself in. Carr's 48 poor throws are the worst in the league. Apologies if it seems like I'm just ripping this pass offense. But yeah, it hasn't been great through the first seven weeks of the 2023 season. Even with all that, two players on this offense can succeed despite the mediocrity, Chris Olave and Alvin Kamara. 
Olave has seen double-digit looks in five of seven games, while Kamara has two games of four played with 14 targets. That kind of volume is hard to come by, friends. While Olave has not been utilized in motion much, he has been moved around the formation at a solid rate, seeing a 36.2% slot snap rate and running the most routes of any wide receiver this year. His 18 deep targets also pace the league. His 579 unrealized air yards do too. Everything screams, this dude is going to have a smash game, eventually. But a matchup against the heavy cover three rates of Gus Bradley's defense put a slight damper on those expectations. Olave has a solid 29.29% targets per route run rate against cover three this season, but just a 65.5% catch rate and 10.8 yards per reception against that primary coverage. For comparison, Adam Thielen has a similar targets per route run rate and 10.9 yards per reception against cover three this year. Another comparison, Alvin Kamara has a 37.1% targets per route run rate against cover three this year. That's important considering the Colts play the most cover three in the league. How Indianapolis will try to win. Shane Steichen's Colts have been playing with extreme pace to start the season. Furthermore, Steichen has proved to be one of the more dynamic offensive play callers through the first seven weeks of the season, albeit with the caveat that he has mostly been forced into adaptability due to the state of his quarterback position. Electric rookie quarterback Anthony Richardson won the starting gig basically from the time he was taken with the fourth overall pick in this year's draft. He then had a knee scare just before the two-minute warning in his first start, a concussion in his second start that also cost him Week 3, a complete game in Week 4, and the season-ending shoulder injury in Week 5 to his throwing shoulder. Gardner Minshew has started three games for the Colts this season, seeing pass attempts of 44, 55, and 23 in those three games. Running back Jonathan Taylor also missed the first four weeks of the season, slowly ramping up his snap rates to an even 50-50 split in Week 7. From what we've seen, Steichen should be considered one of the most opponent-specific game planners in the league, after the highest rush rate over expectation of the season against the Browns in Week 7 and some of the highest pass rate over expectation games earlier in the season. If considering the strengths of the Colts, offensive line, run game, short area passing game, and the opponent, I think it's likeliest we see another slight shift to a more run-balanced approach to start the game in Week 8, with the game environment playing a role in Steichen's situational play-calling tendencies in the second half. Even though Taylor and Zach Moss saw the same number of offensive snaps and the same number of carries in Week 7, Taylor handled 80% of the red zone opportunities and the only opportunity inside the five. It is clear the team wants to keep Moss involved, and, quite frankly, he has earned that right. But Taylor is the alpha on this team and should be treated as such moving forward. The Saints are no slouches against the run, but neither were the Browns last week, whom the Colts rushed 40 times against. New Orleans has held opposing backs to 3.9 yards per carry and has allowed just two rushing scores this season, with the matchup yielding 1.29 net yards before contact. The dynamic run-blocking scheme and individual abilities of Taylor and Moss can win against any opponent, which they proved last week, but this is not a great on-paper matchup. In other words, while the path to truly elite production is narrow for Taylor, he has the talent to pop in this, or any, matchup. Gardner Minshew's modest 7.1 intended air yards per pass attempt and putrid 3.5 completed air yards per pass attempt values are offset slightly by the fifth highest yards after the catch per completion, 5.9, which is sandwiched between C.J. Stroud and Brock Purdy, 5.9 and 5.8, respectively. As in, this offense has been forced to take a more methodical approach on offense, looking to generate space for their primary pass catchers within the first 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. The primary contributors to those methodologies have been Michael Pittman and rookie Josh Downs to this point in the season, 
with Downs seeing the largest bump in involvement with the switch in quarterback from Richardson to Minshew. The Saints have played the second highest rate of man coverage this season, which has led to the sixth deepest defensive ADOT against, but a low completion rate allowed, yielding the sixth fewest air yards at completion through seven weeks. They have also missed the fifth fewest tackles this season, which has kept their yak allowed in check. Add it all up and the Saints generally allow aerial production to areas the Colts are largely poor at attacking. Nothing immediately jumps off the page from the Indianapolis pass game, leaving the potential for volume the only indicator for fantasy success. That narrows things down to just Pittman and Downs for DFS purposes, and even then, neither is overly exciting in this spot. Likeliest Game Flow The solid pace from each team, paired with the more downfield, boom-or-bust nature of the Saints' offense, leads to a game environment where we'll likely see more than the average number of offensive plays run from scrimmage here. While the downfield yet vanilla nature of the Saints' offense is likeliest to lead to more stalled drives than splash plays against the heavy cover three rates of Gus Bradley's defense, the additional volume present in this one could matter for DFS purposes. The red zone struggles from New Orleans also make it much more unlikely that this game environment takes off, leaving us with a situation where we're best served simply following the volume. The top two places for volume to accumulate in this spot are Alvin Kamara and, to a lesser extent, Chris Olave with Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman, and Josh Downs next in line in the expected volume hierarchy. The micro matchup is a significant ding to the fantasy expectations for Taylor, but he has proven to carry the same explosiveness he exhibited prior to the ankle injury and off-field nonsense that cost him eight games over the previous two seasons. Patriots at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 47. Game Overview by Hilo. There is some serious injury uncertainty with the Dolphins this week, with Tyreek Hill, who has a hip injury, and Raheem Mostert, with an ankle injury, missing practice on Wednesday. Five cornerbacks were limited on Wednesday for the Dolphins, but it appears as if all five are in line to play this weekend. Wide receiver Jalen Waddell managed a limited session on Wednesday after departing Week 7 with a back injury. He ultimately returned to the game, but missed over a quarter of play. Update, Tyreek Hill and Raheem Mostert managed limited sessions on Thursday. How New England will try to win. The best way to visualize how the Patriots have been forced to try and win games is by looking at their pace of play compared to the number of offensive plays they can run per game. New England runs the fastest offense in the league from a seconds per play perspective, 26.4, but has averaged just 62.1 plays per game, which ranks 19th in the league. They also average just 14.4 points per game, good for 31st in the league. In other words, the Patriots have been highly inefficient on offense and have largely relied on their defensive prowess to put them in position to win games. At a 2-5 record, that hasn't happened often. Even so, the Patriots will rarely be blown out of the water, with 5 of 7 games decided by 7 points or less. They had a rough stretch in Week 4 and 5, where they were outscored by a combined 69 points in a 2-game span. Most weeks, against most opponents, this team should find a way to keep things close into the 4th quarter in typical Bill Belichick fashion. The Patriots very clearly want to be a team that can control the clock at greater frequency than they have to this point in the season, ranking top 10 in rush rate over expectation. Negative game scripts and poor offensive volume have meant they have averaged only 24.4 rush attempts per game through seven weeks, which is 22nd in the league. But the fact remains that they would otherwise like to subject their defense to less beating, and a lot of that would be lessened by a more successful run game, because quite frankly, the Patriots do not have the tools to be able to win consistently through the air. The major problem with that design is a one-dimensional offensive scheme that lacks many forward-thinking principles, leaving the offense vanilla and straightforward. 
Until that changes, which remains questionable, New England could continue to struggle to control game environments for the remainder of the season. Ramondre Stevenson has settled into a 60-65% snap rate and opportunity share in recent weeks, backed up by change-of-pace grinder Ezekiel Elliott. Stevenson has managed just 3.1 yards per carry and 3.9 yards per touch, with Zeke putting up 3.7 yards per carry and 3.9 yards per touch. The offensive line has blocked to just 1.27 yards before contact, right in line with the 1.26 yards before contact allowed by the Miami defense. Nothing here points to higher levels of efficiency than what they've managed to this point in the season. Demario Douglas returned from a missed game to immediately eat into Devontae Parker's role in the offense, which makes sense considering how poorly Parker has played through the first half of the season. Taking into account a split tight end core and elevated 12 personnel rates left only Kendrick Bourne as an every down pass catcher in Week 7. Juju Smith-Schuster should return from two missed games due to a concussion after not being listed on the team's injury report Wednesday, which is likeliest to eat into Douglas's growing role in the offense, in addition to the 25 offensive snaps from Jalen Rager, as opposed to sapping Bourne's established role. As such, we will likely see a similar snap breakdown to what we saw last week, with Smith-Schuster, Parker, and Douglas sharing the 150-160% to available snap rate for two players, induced by the 40% 12 personnel rates from this offense. Vic Fangio's too-high base defense hasn't performed up to expectations to this point in the season. Still, a heavy zone base requires additional communication, which will likely improve as the season progresses. Kendrick Bourne and Demario Douglas are the team's two top pass catchers against zone coverage this season, with Smith-Schuster seeing the highest target rate against man. How Miami will try to win As we know by now, the Dolphins are one of the most concentrated offenses in the league, which makes the presence of Tyreek Hill, hip injury, and Raheem Mostert, ankle injury, on the injury report so meaningful. It's still too early to speculate on their respective game day statuses, considering I'm writing this game up Thursday morning, so we'll just quickly remark on those situations and then follow up with a larger exploration in the DFS Plus interpretation section on Friday. The Dolphins have been an extremely concentrated offense during Mike McDaniel's tenure. More importantly, they have become even more concentrated when a key player misses a game during the previous two seasons. On the other side of that discussion, Bill Belichick continues to scheme away an opposition's top weapon through situational play-calling tendencies. If the Dolphins are left with just Jalen Waddell and Jeff Wilson because Devon Achain remains on injured reserve, the dynamics of this spot could change drastically over the coming days. As things currently stand, McDaniel is one of the game's most forward-leaning offensive play-callers and designers. The Dolphins rank first in pre-snap motion rate and rates of snaps that come with a player in motion at the snap of the football, which has been dubbed cheat motion by the league. It's against the rules to have a player in forward motion at snap. Still, McDaniel is bending those rules by sending Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell in horizontal motion at snap, effectively getting them running at defenders with momentum built up instead of from a stop. Tricky, tricky indeed. Belichick has seen McDaniel's offense three times already from their games last season and their early 2023 meeting, but the first one came in the opening weekend of 2022, while the second one came with Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback for the Dolphins last year. He might just luck out again with the injury concerns surrounding Hill and Mostert. All of that to say, while they have played in the past, Belichick hasn't seen the full brunt of the Miami offense in earnest yet. At minimum, A-Chain is set to miss the next two games, while Jeff Wilson saw his first game action of the season in Week 7. That has so far left the primary change of pace role to Salvin Ahmed, who would be the likeliest player to enter a more robust role should Mostert miss with an ankle injury. 
Both Wilson and Ahmed run 46240s, so they aren't going to be out there clocking at 22 miles per hour, but both have proven they can be successful in this zone gap run blocking scheme. If Mostert can make it through his ankle injury, he should have a clear path to 65% or more of the offensive snaps and running back opportunities in a matchup that appears poor on paper. The Patriots have allowed just 3.4 yards per carry and surrendered just 1.2 yards before contact this season. That said, the only true test on the ground for the Patriots this season was this Dolphins team back in Week 2 when Mostert hung 120 yards and two touchdowns on them in 18 carries. Belichick focused additional attention on Tyree Kill in these teams' first meeting this season, which paved the way for Jalen Waddell to lead the team in receiving for the only time this season. That would be the likeliest scenario once again should Hill play, with additional attention likely to swing to Waddle should Hill miss. That would open up additional opportunities for Braxton Berrios and Cedric Wilson, the latter of whom put up a combined 100 yards on 7 targets in Week 5 and Week 7, his only two games this season with more than 50% of the offensive snaps played. I wouldn't expect the team to increase their modest 12 personnel rates to compensate for Hill missing, likely are shifting an increased emphasis to the ground game, particularly if Mostert plays and Hill doesn't. In keeping with the earlier discussion, I would expect Waddle to take on more of a pre-snap motion role that has primarily been reserved for Hill. Teams can only have one player in motion at a time pre-snap. Should Hill miss, which is likely to be managed by man coverage with safety help by Belichick. Likeliest Game Flow Belichick schemes well against opponents he sees frequently, typically muting the offensive expectations against divisional rivals. Considering this will be the second time these two teams meet through the first half of the season, and that Hill and Mostert are banged up coming into this one, those chances only gain steam here. That said, McDaniel is an offensive madman, and is capable of reserving new tricks and techniques for later in the season. He'll have his hands full if Hill and Mostert both miss, because those are two of his four elite chess pieces, joined by Devon Achan and Jalen Waddell, which would likely serve to mute the game environment further. Even so, Miami ranks first in points per game for a reason, making this no small task for Belichick and company regardless of who is active on game day. The Patriots are highly unlikely to contribute to many game environment eruptions this season based on how their offense is built. That said, they currently rank as the fastest overall offense in the league, which could provide additional offensive snaps run from scrimmage to the game environment as a whole. Basically, this spot becomes tricky to analyze fully, considering the injuries to two of the three primary pieces of the Miami offense. Jets at Giants, kickoff Sunday, October 29th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 36.5. Game Overview, by Hilo. Sauce Gardner and DJ Reed were full participants in Wednesday's practice, a good sign that they will both return from a missed game due to concussions. Giants QB Daniel Jones was listed as a limited participant again on Wednesday, just as he was all last week before missing Week 7's game. Both teams are in the bottom half of the league in seconds per play and combined for just 121 plays per game. The average this season is just under 130 plays per game. Both teams rank in the bottom half of the league in pass rate over expectation. Wide receiver Randall Cobb did not practice on Wednesday with a shoulder injury, and Mecole Hardman was dealt back to the Chiefs potentially opening up additional snaps for undrafted free agent rookie wide receiver Xavier Gibson, who has been the primary slot fill-in behind Cobb to this point in the season. How the New York Jets will try to win The Jets have a run-balanced offense with a moderate pace of play in the absence of Aaron Rodgers this season, which has no indication of changing anytime soon. 
One of the more telling splits that indicate how the Jets are likeliest to attack this spot is the drastic changes in numbers against the Blitz versus when kept clean for Zach Wilson, both this season and throughout his career. Wilson is a slightly below average quarterback when kept clean, but a legitimate bottom five passer when blitzed. That's important because Wink Martindale's defense has blitzed over 41% of their defensive snaps this season. I know this, you know this, so we could bet Robert Sala and Nathaniel Hackett know this. That should lead to a heavy emphasis on the ground game as the Jets look to leverage their defense and string together long drives on their way to grinding out a victory. Finally, the Jets are coming off their bye week, but managed to hand the undefeated Eagles their first loss of the season in Week 6. They stole victory from the clutches of defeat after going down 14-3 in the second quarter, sticking to their game plan of parlaying defensive success into a methodical approach on offense. Finally, the Jets have absolutely held their own while running the proverbial gauntlet early in the season, with wins over Buffalo, Denver, and Philadelphia, and narrow losses to Kansas City and New England. They were blown out by the Cowboys. They are now entering a time in the season when their schedule lightens up a bit. After starting the season slowly while working his way back to full strength, Brees Hall has handled 80.8% of the team's running back opportunities on snap rates of 52 and 66% over the previous two games. Hall's 6.5 yards per carry and 6.8 yards per touch rank second in the league behind only Devon A-Chain in Miami, while his juke rate, 29.1%, and breakaway run rate, 9.1%, both rank in the top six. The dude is a legitimate joystick. He has done all this despite the fifth worst game script rating. The matchup yields the third highest net yards before contact value on the slate against the Giants defense that has surrendered a massive 5.0 yards per carry to opposing backs. Dalvin Cook has played just 20 total offensive snaps the past two games in a light change of pace role, seeding passing down duties to Michael Carter. The Jets have run their offense with above average rates of 12 personnel and sparse utilization of 21 personnel, leaving their offense based almost entirely out of 11 and 12 personnel. The biggest issue with this Hackett offense has been a very vanilla offensive design through the air. The good news is that the bulk of the pass offense is concentrated on one man, second-year alpha wide receiver Garrett Wilson. Wilson holds an elite 32.5% team target market share and a bonkers 54.5% red zone target market share, seeing 9.2 targets per game this season. Low efficiency and few scoring opportunities have kept his season high to just 17 DK points, but the underlying metrics hit at a potential breakout game or two the rest of the way. Alan Lazard is the only other pass catcher to operate in a near every down role, but he carries modest marks in target market share, 13.6%, and targets per route run rate, 12.4%, carrying the most utility for his run blocking abilities. Finally, Xavier Gibson could be thrust into an increased role with Mecole Hardman no longer in town and slotman Rindel Cobb looking on the worst side of questionable with a shoulder injury. Gibson, the team's primary kick returner, is a touchdown-waiting-to-happen type player with elite vision and burst with the ball in his hands. He has seen just one target on the season, so this could be a case of the volume simply following Hall and Wilson at an increased rate, but he's an interesting upside piece at likely low ownership this weekend for loose MME pools. How the New York Giants will try to win After getting blown out in four of their first five games, Brian Dayball and Wink Martindale's Giants have held the Bills to 14 points and the Commanders to 7 points in back-to-back weeks as they come into their own this season. Whether that is attributable to variance or highlights a more projectable trend remains to be seen, but the team is playing better in that recent stretch. Defensively, we know what we're going to get with Martindale's defense, which includes elevated blitz rates and high man coverage rates. 
We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating here. Martindale's defensive philosophy attempts to disrupt opponents via negative plays and forcing teams into long down-and-distance situations. He has historically parlayed that into low-drive success rates against and cracked down in the red zone, regularly finishing in the top 10 in red zone touch rate allowed. The problem so far this season has been a lessened ability to find those disruptive plays between the 20s and a relative inability to keep teams out of the end zone, until two weeks ago. An inability to move the ball on offense plagued the defense as it provided opponents with higher time of possession and shorter fields, which has improved since Tyrod Taylor took over for the injured Daniel Jones two weeks ago. Jones practiced in a limited capacity all last week before ultimately being ruled out with his neck injury, which is important after he managed a limited session to start Week 8's preparation. The finer major problem for this team to start the year has been an underperforming and injury-riddled offensive line that has really affected Jones' ability to sustain drives. Taylor has had more success diagnosing defenses and avoiding oncoming rushers, but the offensive line has been a legitimate issue, causing each quarterback to be ranked near the bottom of the league in intended air yards per pass attempt. All of left tackle Andrew Thomas, right tackle Evan Neal, and center John Michael Schmitz started the week with a limited session and could return to action against the Jets. Dable's offense has fought through ineffective offensive line play and changing personnel in the backfield to house an above-average rush rate over expectation this season, which is more of an emphasis on a balanced approach through negative game environments than it is a commitment to an underperforming run game. Franchise back Saquon Barkley missed three games with an ankle injury, but is that dude for the Giants when healthy, handling a robust 81.9% snap rate and 84.7% opportunity share when healthy. The slow pace of play, relative inability to sustain drives, and balanced offense have led to a near-average 27.1 rush attempts per game, most of which are accounted for by Barkley, and whichever quarterback draws the start. The matchup against the run-funnel Jets defense yields a moderate 1.26 yards before contact value, but takes a slight hit considering the Jets are coming off their bye week. Either way, don't expect a massive boost to the poor efficiency from Barkley to this point in the season, who has struggled to 3.8 yards per carry. Solid pass game usage and an above-average explosive run rate always give Barkley ceiling, but an elevated 24.3% stuffed run rate highlights the more boom-bust nature of his game, while running behind a poor run-blocking line. Matt Breida will remain on hand to soak up any snaps and opportunities left behind by Barkley. The offense is likely to be affected by the quarterback situation, as Daniel Jones has one of the lowest intended air yards per pass attempt values at 6.3, while Tyrod Taylor's healthy 8.0 mark ranks in the top 12 in the league. Taylor also brings more accurate downfield ability, which gives Dayball a bit more fluidity to his play-calling arsenal. The solid mix of man and zone principles, paired with elite talent in the secondary, has led to the Jets forcing the 7th shallowest A-dot and 3rd fewest air yards this season, albeit with some struggles in containing pass catchers with the ball in their hands, ninth most yak allowed at 796 through just 6 games played, which shakes out to bottom 5 in yak allowed per game. The ability of the Jets' defensive front to win without blitzing has generated the highest delta in blitz rate versus pressure rate this season. 18.3% blitz rate ranks second to last, while their 28.5% pressure rate ranks third, which could once again hold the Giants to short area passes. That makeup is also likely to disrupt the Giants' drives, forcing them to adopt a more move-the-chains offense mentality than they would otherwise like in this spot. Week 7 marked the second consecutive game of a more concentrated pass-catching core, headed by tight end Darren Waller and wide receiver Darius Slayton. 
Rookie wide receiver Jalen Hyatt has settled into a 70-75% snap rate and 80-85% route participation rate, while slotman Wandell Robinson has played 60-67% of the offensive snaps in four consecutive weeks. Even with the seemingly increased emphasis on Waller over the previous two weeks, he has managed a still low 23.1% target market share during those two weeks. What has improved for him during that time is a growing first read market share, which indicates a more designed role and an attempt to kickstart his involvement in the offense. Likeliest Game Flow Zach Wilson is no superstar when kept clean, but he's at least serviceable. When blitzed, Wilson turns into a pumpkin, with only Daniel Jones, Gardner Minshew, Sam Howell, and Mac Jones performing worse against the blitz this season. That makes it difficult to envision the Jets having much success against the 41% blitz rates from Wink Martindale's defense and should tilt them toward the ground attack for as long as possible. On the other side, the Jets' ability to force teams to the short area of the field via elevated pressure rates and a solid mix of man and zone coverages mutes the Giants' side of the ball, coming together to form a likeliest scenario where each team largely struggles to sustain drives. The muted pass rate over expectation values backs this assertion up, but it also represents each team's clearest paths to moving the football, which saps a lot of the allure from the game environment itself. As is often the case in setups such as this one, the optimal DFS approach would be to follow the volume or stay away. The lone exception very well could be Brees Hall, who has recent volume, expected game environment, matchup, and team tendencies all working in his favor in this spot. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Jaguars at the Steelers kick off Sunday, October 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Due to time constraints, the audio for this write-up is not available. Please find this entire game write-up on the NFL Edge at OneWeekSeason.com. The Falcons at the Titans kick off Sunday, October 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 35.5. Game Overview by Pappy Wake up, Grandpa! This game features two of the lowest teams in pass rate over expectation. The Titans are the slowest team in the league, while the Falcons are the run-heaviest team, leaving limited paths to DFS fireworks. Arthur Smith spent his entire career coaching in Tennessee before being hired by the Falcons and built his team in the Titans' image. Both teams are much stronger at stopping the run than the pass, but neither coach is likely to change their approach on offense. Bijan Robinson saw a $1,300 price decrease on DK and is priced $2,000 below where he was in Week 1. Desmond Ritter and Drake London remain stubbornly priced below their upside. Derrick Henry has moved into a timeshare, with snap counts of 53%, 62%, and 59% the past three weeks. He's overpriced for his role. The Titans are likely set to trot out some combination of Malik Willis and Will Levis at quarterback with Ryan Tannehill, ankle, expected to be sidelined. How Atlanta will try to win The 4-3 and three Falcons come into Week 8 sitting atop the horrific NFC South. They are one of only two teams in the league, Steelers, with a negative point differential, negative 18, and a winning record. 
Smith's Falcons have been hard to watch for most of the year, but they aren't going to feel like failures inside their own locker room. The Falcons have had one of the clearest identities in the league. They are dead last in PROE and have shown that they're only willing to open their offense if forced to chase points. The Falcons are going to play behind their elite offensive line, third ranked per PFF, highlighted by center Drew Dahlman's league-leading run-blocking grade. The Falcons are going to run. Smith spent a decade as an assistant coach with the Titans. In fact, he never coached anywhere other than Tennessee before being hired as Atlanta's head coach in 2021. Since the Titans won the Super Bowl several times in the past decade, Smith decided to build the Titans 2.0 in Atlanta. Wait, what's that? The Titans have never won the Super Bowl? Then why would Smith want to copy a formula that isn't working? Because his playing background is as an offensive lineman, and he's a typical uncreative NFL head coach who would rather lean into a 1990s style of play that he knows than risk the perils of throwing the ball. Oh, duh, thanks for clearing that up, inner voice. The Titans are stout against the run, fourth in DVOA, but can't stop anyone through the air, 26th in DVOA. Do the 1990s care? Does Smith's mustache care? Emmett Smith would have run for 200 on these bumps. The Falcons are a do-what-we-do offense, and what they do is run the ball. That is unlikely to change, even against a defense that invites the pass. The Falcons have become one of the easiest teams in the league to predict, since they aren't going to change their style of play based on their opponent. Smith's game planning is like talking to The Rock in the 90s. Coach Vrabel, where is your defense weakest? asked Smith. Well, we are pretty tough against the run, but can be beaten by the pa- It doesn't matter where your defense is weak, shouts Smith. I'm gonna take Robinson, shine him up real nice and good, turn that SOB sideways, and run him right up your candy ass. How Tennessee will try to win. The 2-4 and four Titans come into Week 8 with a much worse record than the Falcons, but better point differential, negative 13. The Titans lost three one-score games against the Saints, Colts, and Ravens, and were only beaten badly by the Browns. Vrabel's Titans play an outdated style and have one of their least talented rosters of his tenure to date. Still, they're usually able to figure out a way to do enough to keep games close. Their tendency to play close games is also heightened by their incredibly slow pace. The Titans rank dead last in pace and run the second-fewest plays per game. The Titans want to run, 25th in PROE, but have a putrid O-line that is ranked last in the league per PFF. They are miserable at pass-blocking, last in pass-blocking efficiency, and Tannehill looks like he's on the wrong side of questionable with a high ankle sprain. That leaves some combination of Levi's and Willis at QB. The lack of a reliable QB furthers the already high chance that the Titans play with a run-out-the-clock-in-the-first-quarter mindset. The Titans are finding it hard to play smash-mouth football behind a crumbling O-line, but that won't stop them from trying. The Falcons, who are built just like the Titans, are tough against the run, 9th in DVOA, but vulnerable through the air, 29th in DVOA. That discrepancy is unlikely to tilt the Titans away from their do-our-thing approach. These two teams are mirror images of one another, and neither one is going to care about the other being stronger against the run than the pass. This game should really be decided by a feats-of-strength battle between Vrabel and Smith. 
Whoever can piggyback Henry the furthest wins, with a hot dog eating contest as the tiebreaker when they both fall over right away. Expect the Titans to come out running and bleeding the clock. Vrabel is going to try and keep things close, limit his inexperienced QB's mistakes, and hope to win on a late Falcons error. Likeliest Game Flow This game is depressing. It has a clownish total, 35.5, with the Falcons installed as slight, negative 2.5, road favorites. This is a game between two teams who want to run and play conservative offense while being able to stuff the run on defense. Neither coach is the type to adjust and attack a specific defensive weakness, which sets up a 1990s affair where both teams are going to slam their running games into the teeth of the opposing defense. The chances of a run-fest is elevated by the Titans being forced to use some combination of inexperienced players at QB. The most likely outcome is both predictable teams play in their predictable styles, creating a game with a ton of running and clock bleeding. Expect this game to stay relatively close on the scoreboard, with the Falcons being able to do enough to get the victory behind their regular starter at QB in Ritter. The Eagles at the Commanders kick off Sunday, October 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Due to time constraints, the audio for this write-up is not available. Please find this entire game write-up on the NFL Edge at OneWeekSeason.com. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Browns at the Seahawks kick off Sunday, October 29th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 38. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Browns are somehow in the race for the AFC North, despite a tumultuous start to the season. Cleveland will play this game without quarterback Deshaun Watson, who is nursing a shoulder injury, as well as their top two running backs, Nick Chubb and Jerome Ford. Seattle's last three games have all had combined scores of 30 or less. The Seahawks will likely welcome DK Metcalf back after missing last week's win over Arizona with rib and hip injuries. The Seahawks' pass defense is the only area of weakness, according to the DVOA metrics, as the Seattle run defense ranks third in the NFL and the Browns' defense ranks second against both the pass and the run. How Cleveland will try to win The Deshaun Watson saga continues as he will miss this week's game, and likely more, due to the nagging shoulder injury that has been following him around for over a month now. Veteran journeyman and XFL MVP P.J. Walker will be the Browns' starter for at least this week. He led the Browns to a stunning but ugly Week 6 win over the 49ers as he came in on relief to throw 32 passes in a thrilling last-second victory over the Colts. The Browns were dead last in the NFL in pass rate over expectation in Week 7 as they ran the ball over 30 times in a wild 39-38 victory. The Browns are ranked 29th in PROE this season, showing that last week was not a blip on the radar, and we should expect a similar approach this week in a hostile environment with their backup quarterback under center.
The issue for the Browns this week will be a Seattle defense that ranks third in the NFL in both run defense DVOA and opponents' yards per carry. They have swallowed up everyone in their paths and should be able to key in on the Browns' rushing attack to try to force Walker to beat them. Furthering the struggle for Cleveland will be the absence of Jerome Ford, who has been terrific as the lead runner for the Browns since Nick Chubb's devastating knee injury. Ford has a sprained ankle of some variety and will miss at least the next one to two weeks. Kareem Hunt and Pierre Strong will split backfield duties in the meantime, with Hunt likely to lead the team in carries and be used near the goal line while Strong gets a slightly smaller share of the rushing load and is involved more in space and the passing game. In any regard, these are near-replacement-level players at this point facing a top-notch run defense. The Browns have been known for having a very good offensive line for many years now, but this year they rank 20th in PFF run blocking grades through Week 7. Seattle's defense plays primarily zone coverage, leading the league in zone coverage rate and ranking 27th in the NFL in blitz rate. Their primary focus is to contain their opponents and prevent them from making big plays down the field, while also executing a strong run defense that forces their opponents into long down and distance situations. They have been extremely effective with this approach this year, especially recently, as they have surrendered only 30 points combined in their last three games. Cleveland's offense is likely to struggle running the ball, and Seattle's defense is going to keep them from successfully taking downfield shots, leaving the short-to-intermediate passing game, primarily in the middle of the field, as their most likely path to success, moving the ball. How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks' offense has been struggling a bit this season and has failed to produce more than 20 points in over a month. As a matter of fact, Seattle has scored 20 points only twice all season, with one of those instances coming in a game against the Panthers' bottom three defense, and the other game coming against the Lions in Detroit, where we often see shootouts erupt. They have instead been relying on a strong defense and ball control as their recipe for success, and have consistently been a team for a few years that only produces high-scoring games when pushed to do so by their opponent's offense or when they are facing a very poor opposing defense. This week offers neither of those factors, as the Browns boast the league's number one ranked defense by DVOA and their offense is limping into this game, despite last week's 39-point outing against the Colts, which was largely fueled by big plays from their defense and offensive playmakers who will not be playing this week. Seattle ranks 8th in PROE and 6th in passing offense DVOA. Their personnel, however, is not particularly well-built for this specific matchup. While Seattle leads the league in zone coverage rate, the Browns lead the NFL in man coverage rate. None of the Seahawks' wide receivers are best suited for attacking man coverage, especially when the opponent playing man coverage is very good at it, and the Browns rank second in pass defense DVOA. The Browns also rank first in PFF pass rush grade, as Miles Garrett continues to terrorize opposing quarterbacks. Cleveland ranks 5th in QB pressure rate and ninth in blitz rate, as they have really been able to turn up the heat on their opponents. The Seattle running game is inconsistent, with lead runner Kenneth Walker being more of a boom-or-bust type of runner rather than a consistent chain mover. This matchup sets up for more bust than boom on the ground, meaning Seattle will likely need their receivers to win some one-on-one matchups in order for them to move the ball. They may also have to take some deep shots, 
leveraging the physical skill set of DK Metcalf and the elite ball skills of Tyler Lockett to try to relieve some pressure that this Browns defense will be applying. Rookie wide receiver Jackson Smith-Najigba should once again have a key role in the offense and may be needed to step up this week as the slot receiver against a team that was just dusted by Colts slot receiver Josh Downs in Week 7. Likeliest Game Flow It is really hard to see this game turning into a high-scoring affair when you consider the factors involved. The Seahawks' pass defense is the only area of weakness, according to DVOA metrics, as the Seattle run defense ranks third in the NFL and the Browns' defense ranks second against both the pass and the run. Combining that with the reality that the Browns' passing offense is the worst unit amongst the two teams, it becomes clear that there are very few paths to scoring a lot of points in this game, and it will likely be a dogfight to the end. The Seahawks are the team likeliest to control this game as their quarterback is steadier and less likely to commit turnovers. But the Browns' defense should be solid enough to keep things interesting from a competitive standpoint even if that doesn't happen in an entertaining way. We have talked often about how Seattle is the type of team that doesn't usually open up their offense until they are forced to. And this matchup certainly does not set up as one where we would expect the Browns' offense to be applying the pressure. The Ravens at the Cardinals kick off Sunday, October 29th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Ravens have the highest implied team total on the slate and are coming off a convincing win over the Lions. The Cardinals have been struggling despite some promising signs early in the season and now have a 1-6 record but they may be getting Kyler Murray back soon. The Ravens should be able to move the ball in any manner they choose, while the Cardinals will be throwing things at the wall and hoping they stick. Baltimore is coming off the most pass-heavy game this season, in terms of pass rate over expectation, and appear to be hitting their stride in their new offensive system. There are signs for concern with the tempo of this game, mainly due to the play-calling of the Cardinals and the pace of the Ravens. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens faced arguably their toughest test of the season in Week 7 when they welcomed the scorching hot Lions to town, and Baltimore passed with flying colors. The Ravens not only pulled off the victory, they absolutely dominated Detroit from start to finish, building a 28-0 halftime lead and coasting to an easy 38-6 win. Lamar Jackson took another step in his return to the top echelon of NFL QBs, and the team's offense had their highest single-week PROE of the year. As things seem to be settling into place, and Lamar is starting to roll in new offensive coordinator Tom Munkin's system. This week, Baltimore will travel west for a game against a flailing Cardinals team that has lost its last four games by an average of 15 points. By all accounts, the Ravens should dominate this game on both sides of the ball. Baltimore is the top-rated team in the NFL by overall DVOA, while ranking in the top five in both offensive and defensive DVOA rankings. Baltimore and Kansas City are the only teams that hold such a distinction, signifying how strong a contender both teams are. However, the NFL can be random and chaotic, with unpredictable outcomes happening on a weekly basis. If ever there was a setup for a huge letdown game, this would be it as they come following a huge home win against a team they were up to play and now traveling to sunny Arizona for what appears to be a cakewalk game. 
The Ravens are well coached, so they should be prepared and avoid that trap. But the situation is at least worth being aware of. From a tactical standpoint, the Ravens are taking the training wheels off Jackson. Baltimore led the NFL in PROE in Week 7, setting a season high as they took it to a Lions defense that had previously been playing at an elite level. Jackson threw for 255 yards and two touchdowns in the first half of that game, while also running for a touchdown. Gus Edwards and Justice Hill each played exactly 50% of the snaps in Week 7, but Edwards has taken control of the Ravens' backfield at this point in the year, as he had 15 opportunities compared to Hill's 5. Over the past four weeks, Hill has averaged 5.5 carries and 2.5 targets per game, while Edwards has averaged 14.3 carries and 1.3 targets per game. Lamar is averaging nearly 10 carries per game himself, which takes a big chunk of the backfield work away, but Edwards has established himself as the lead running back, who also has goal-line duties. This week, the Ravens face a Cardinals defense that has given up 30 or more points in three of the last six games and has given up at least 20 in four straight contests. Arizona ranks in the bottom five in the NFL against both the run and the pass, and the Cardinals play a relatively conservative style of defense that focuses on taking away big plays and forcing teams to march down the field with long possessions, effectively shortening the game like a high school basketball team playing stall ball and running two minutes off the clock per possession. The Ravens should be able to play exactly how they want to, attacking the intermediate areas of the field, through the air, and leveraging Jackson's dual-threat ability to create running lanes for him and their backs. How Arizona will try to win The Cardinals rank 31st in the NFL in PROE, as their weekly goal at this point is basically to bring their opponents down to their level, by slowing the game down and keeping it low-scoring and ugly. If you get to the fourth quarter of an NFL game and things are within one score, anything can happen. We saw it a couple of weeks ago when the Jets beat the Eagles, despite not doing much offensively throughout the game. Some teams have trouble winning games, but if they play good enough defense and grind on their opponent, they can sometimes fall into a win when their opponent effectively beats themselves. Arizona looks to utilize the legs of quarterback Joshua Dobbs, who has at least six rushing attempts in four of his last five games, and otherwise has been really spreading the ball around. Six different players saw at least four opportunities, targets or carries, in Week 7. Among them, the undrafted rookie running back Imari DiMarcado led the way, playing over 80% of the team's offensive snaps and handling all but one of the running back touches. Veteran tight end Zach Ertz saw only four targets, while tight end Trey McBride and wide receivers Rondale Moore, Michael Wilson, and Marquise Brown all had between five and eight opportunities. The Cardinals placed Ertz on injured reserve this week, which should cement McBride's role as an every-down tight end and filter a couple more targets to him and the other receivers. The Cardinals are once again likely to run the ball more often than usual game script would suggest especially this week against the Ravens' dominant pass defense that leads the league in pass defense DVOA and gives up the lowest yards per attempt to opposing quarterbacks. The Cardinals will likely struggle to sustain drives, and their general play calling will likely focus on quick hitters and the short to intermediate areas of the field, with avoiding sacks and turnovers being a critical factor in trying to keep this game within striking distance into the second half. Likeliest Game Flow The Ravens should control this game from start to finish. 
Basically, what they were able to do to the Lions last week is exactly what they should be able to do against a far less capable opponent in the Cardinals. There is the caveat mentioned earlier that anything can happen in the NFL, but the Cardinals' offense's only success this season has come against lower-tier or inconsistent defenses. The Ravens' defense has been outstanding virtually the entire season and has given up only 10 points per game over the last four weeks. Baltimore should be able to score points early and often, the biggest holdup for them likely being if they are unable to convert drives into touchdowns. Arizona's ceiling outcome from a points-scored standpoint here is very low, making it unlikely that the Cardinals score more than once or twice in the first half, with touchdowns likely very hard to come by while the Ravens are fully engaged. A close game that ends up with Arizona covering the current 10-point spread would be the likeliest to happen either through Baltimore's offense failing to convert drives to touchdowns, therefore reducing their point total and keeping the Cardinals in it, and or a backdoor cover where the Cardinals are able to muster some second-half points that leave the final score looking closer than how the actual game plays out. The Chiefs at the Broncos. Kickoff Sunday, October 29th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 47. Due to time constraints, the audio for this write-up is not available. Please find this entire game write-up on the NFL Edge at OneWeekSeason.com. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bengals at the 49ers kick off Sunday, October 29th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Bengals enter this game fresh off their Week 7 bye and hope to make a run at the very competitive AFC North. San Francisco is looking to rebound from a tough Monday night loss on the road against the Vikings. Debo Samuel is once again expected to miss this game for the 49ers, which should somewhat concentrate their touches. 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy was put in the league's concussion protocol on Wednesday, meaning he will almost certainly miss this game and be replaced by Sam Darnold. This should be the healthiest we have seen the Bengals' offense all year. The 49ers' offense has scored 34 total points the last two weeks, after scoring at least 30 in each of their first five games. This game is likely to be decided by turnovers and explosive plays as two well-coached teams are likely to be in store for a slugfest. How Cincinnati will try to win The Bengals have had an up-and-down 2023 season in the early going, but they enter Week 8 with a 3-3 record and a chance to make a statement heading into the second half of the season, on the road against a very good 49ers team. The 49ers are on the ropes and simply hoping to get their Week 9 bye week, while the Bengals should be fully prepared to push them and return to their status as a team that is tough out on a weekly basis. Joe Burrow has struggled all season with a calf injury, but he should be the healthiest he has been in 2023. T. Higgins returned from a rib injury in Week 6, but the team appeared to try to protect him with limited usage. He should also be close to full strength after a week of rest, giving the Bengals the closest thing they've had to their usually elite offense so far this season. The 49ers' defense has not surrendered more than 23 points all season, and has held five of their seven opponents below 20 points. 
That being said, a full-strength Bengals offense will be, by far, the toughest test San Francisco has had this season. Cincinnati ranks second in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, as the Bengals have leaned heavily on Burrow to carry them due to their struggling running game and their need to play almost exclusively out of the shotgun due to his calf injury. It remains to be seen if the Bengals will be able to play under center more coming out of their bye, and there is no tactical reason for Cincinnati to share that information prior to Sunday, as in either regard, they would prefer the 49ers enter the situation unaware of what to expect. Either way, the Bengals' passing game is in the best shape it has been all year, while their running game has been inefficient all year and was during all of 2022 as well. After seeing Kirk Cousins dice up the 49ers' pass defense on Monday night, he had 324 passing yards through three quarters. Without the services of Justin Jefferson, the Bengals should enter this game very confident in their ability to move the ball through the air, and also should expect that to be their best path to scoring points. On the surface, San Francisco's defensive DVOA metrics point to the Niners being easier to run on than throw on, but schematically and personnel-wise, they are built to be a tough run defense and the Bengals match up far better through the air. The Bengals are also likely to be aware of the fact that the 49ers are built to play with a lead and that their best chance of leaving San Francisco with a victory is flipping that script and applying the pressure to Darnold and the 49ers' offense. While Bengals head coach Zach Taylor has been frustrating at times during his time with the team for being too timid offensively, the Bengals' elevated pass rate this season, finally near full-strength offensive personnel, and desired game script are all signs that this could be a weak Cincinnati approaches with an aggressive mindset. How San Francisco will try to win After looking like potentially the best team in the NFL for five weeks, the 49ers have dropped back-to-back road games against the Browns and Vikings. San Francisco's defense was less than dominant last week, but the real issue has been their offense, which has managed only 17 points in each loss. After dominating the first five games on their schedule and scoring at least 30 points in each, Purdy and company have looked mortal while casting doubt on their status as a top-tier contender. Perhaps the loss of Samuel has been a bigger issue than people expected, as he left early in the Browns game and is not expected back until after San Francisco's Week 9 bye. On the opposite end of the spectrum from the Bengals, the 49ers enter this week hoping to escape with a victory and then use their bye week to regroup heading into the second half of the year. San Francisco ranks 27th in the NFL in PROE, as the Niners focus on ball control, efficiency, and big plays to make their offense go. They often thrive on turnovers that create short fields to spark their offense, and they play at a methodical pace that does not make their opponents uncomfortable. While some teams use tempo to get their opponents on their heels, San Francisco is dependent on creating a positive game script that slowly applies pressure like a boa constrictor gradually squeezing out its prey. The issue for San Francisco the last two weeks has been that it has been unable to create its preferred game script and even trailed wire-to-wire in Minnesota on Monday night. The 49ers also lost the turnover battle to the Vikings by a 3-1 margin. That was the first time the 49ers have lost the turnover battle in a game with Purdy as their quarterback, other than last season's NFC Championship game when Purdy tore the UCL in his throwing elbow and they essentially played without a quarterback. This week, the 49ers will be without Purdy and will instead turn to one-time second overall pick Darnold, who may actually have more arm talent than Purdy, but is unlikely to be as precise in how he runs Kyle Shanahan's offense. 
There may be some small tweaks to how the 49ers call some plays in this game, but in general, their approach and game plan is somewhat independent of their quarterback play. Something that we have seen repeatedly in the past is Jimmy Garoppolo, Nick Mullins, C.J. Beathard, and Purdy all ran a very similar style of offense during their time under center for Shanahan. The only notable changes to the scheme happened when Trey Lance had his limited opportunities, and those changes were only to highlight his rushing ability. Darnold is a more capable scrambler than Purdy, but not to the point where San Francisco will alter its scheme to highlight it. In total, this 49ers offense should look the same as it has all season, with more variance likely in their outcomes. From a tactical standpoint, the 49ers offense has struggled the last two weeks against a Browns defense that plays the highest rate of man coverage in the league, and a Vikings defense that leads the NFL in blitz rate while playing a high degree of cover one defense, which also relies heavily on man concepts. The 49ers offense is built to get the ball in the hands of their playmakers, who then make plays after the catch. They have struggled to create the necessary separation to set up those types of plays during their current two-game losing streak. The Bengals' defense is middle of the pack in man coverage rate and blitz rate, which may allow a slight reprieve for San Francisco this week. However, the Bengals' defensive coordinator, Lou Anarumo, is very good at what he does and has had a bye week to create a game plan tailored to slowing down the 49ers. He has done a masterful job of slowing down the likes of the Chiefs and the Bills' high-powered offenses the last couple of years, and I would expect him to implement the concepts that San Francisco struggled with recently and force the 49ers to prove they can find an answer. The 49ers will play at their usual methodical tempo and run the ball at a high rate, with Christian McCaffrey operating as the engine to their offense. But they will need Darnold to take care of the football and at least one of Brandon Ayuk or George Kittle to dominate their matchups if they are going to get back on track offensively and control this game. Likeliest Game Flow The Bengals are the team most likely to feature their passing game in this matchup while the 49ers are most certainly going to try to ride McCaffrey. Neither team plays at a high pace, with the 49ers ranking as one of the slowest tempo teams in the NFL. The most likely scenario is a slow-moving game in the first half. The Bengals' defense is less than elite, but is very well coached and can cause opponents fit schematically, especially with extra prep time. Meanwhile, despite the fact that Cincinnati may be aggressive early in the game, this is still a 49ers defense that has been stifling on the scoreboard, even in their losses. Cincinnati may be able to build an early lead like the Vikings did, but it's unlikely the Bengals are able to pull away to the point where San Francisco gets truly uncomfortable and has to panic early and move away from its game plan. Ultimately, points will be at a premium in this matchup of two teams that were each a game away from the Super Bowl last season and the outcome and game flow is almost certainly going to come down to which team wins the turnover battle and or who is able to break off an explosive play that puts them in control of the game script.